WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly or accurately dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, it's great to be here. If you are a first-time listener to our station, for the next hour, we will be taking questions that people have concerning God's Word, whether it's a, a difficult passage they're trying to understand and apply, or some issue that you're facing in your life or church or ministry that you'd like a biblical application to. If we can help, we will do the very best we can. So all you need to do is, again, call us. The number locally is 843-525-1859. You can also text us right here or email us here at TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. And we're happy to receive it that way. Let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brody. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. What's up, brother? Uh, obviously, the movie The Shack just came out. Uh, I know you're familiar with the book. I've read reviews online, uh, including, uh, I guess, going back to the book in 2012 with Dr. Michael Youssef, uh, 13 Heresies. In the shack, uh, there's some that, like himself or Al Mohler, who calls it heresy. Others that say it's just fiction and that it can be used to uh, witness to people. Uh, some Christians come out and say that, no, I won't go see it. Others say, you know, it might have heresies, but I don't think it's dangerous. I was just wondering what your take is on it. Well, I've not seen the movie. I know I think it just is coming out, being released this week. But uh, the book that came out, you know, what, a decade ago uh, is filled with error. It has all kinds of uh, wrong and bad theology in it. Uh, to begin with, uh, their view of the doctrine of the Trinity is less than orthodox. Uh, the way he presents the Trinity is really what we would summarize as oneness Pentecostalism where the Father becomes the Son, the Son becomes the Father, the Father becomes the Spirit. Uh, but a denial of the biblical concept that there are three co-equal, co-eternal persons within the Godhead. And his view of Christ is less than, at least the way he's expressed in the book, less than the full deity of Christ. And the, the, one of the bigger heresies in it is it teaches universalism that in the end, God will reconcile all people, be you Buddhist or Hindu or whatever. And so it's an express denial against the truth that Jesus gave, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so there is a great need in our day for evangelicals to wake up. And the reason, unfortunately, 
many uh, Christians don't know whether it was good or bad is because they no longer know their Bibles. And we have uh, replaced biblical preaching with drama and skits and entertainment and music. And uh, now the preaching of a sermon is an appendage uh, to most worship services in America rather than the centrality of the New Testament model that you find in the pastoral epistles. And so given enough time when people become ignorant of what the Bible says, then indeed, um, you know, they don't know what to do. Uh, I, I had a meeting with Dr. Youssef a couple months ago in his office for about a month, uh, for about an hour. And he gave me his book on uh, the shack and it's an excellent book. I would recommend that uh, Al Moeller, the president of Southern seminary has written a number of uh, articles in the book as well that kind of summarize uh, the, the heresy in the book. The book uh, was originally written by a dad for his kids and he did it in order to help his children to understand what he viewed as theology about God. So his intention was not purely fictional, but he uses fictitious characters to communicate what he considers to be truth. So that was his intention. You can read about the author's intention, you know, very, very clearly. But if that's his intention, then, you know, if he's going to deny uh, that Jesus is the only way that in the end all people will be saved and all religions will be saved. And there's a, a number of explicit statements in the book that teach that. And again, if you, uh, you know, want to read the book, it become obvious to you. If you don't feel like reading the book, then pick up one of the summary evaluations by Al Mohler or uh, Dr. Michael Youssef, and you'll see uh, clearly the error in it. So uh, I'm obviously not in favor of promoting error and people will go, and I've not seen the movie, so I don't know if the movie reflects the book. But if it does, then it makes people feel comfortable with, uh, with a denial of their need to come to God through Jesus alone. And so the book is heretical. Uh, there's no question about it. And when people read it, they say, oh, that was a really good book. It just tells me, man, they're either lost or they are a baby, 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 baby Christian who knows so little of their Bible that they can't discern between good and evil. And your ability to discern between good and evil, according to Hebrews chapter five, and let me just read that because this might be a good launching text for our program today for the Bible line. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews, of course, is dealing with people whom he had expected would have grown uh, but they were, you know, somewhat stagnant in their growth. And so he says concerning him, I'm reading from Hebrews 5 and verse 11. And the hymn is Melchizedek. Uh, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain? Since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, there's a sense in which every Christian ought to be a teacher. Now, this is not a contradiction to the fact that God gives certain spiritual gifts to particular individuals that have nothing to do with us, but everything to do with God. He is the one who decides what gifts we get. And this has nothing to do with those who serve in the office of teaching, where James says, let not many of you become teachers. But with the 16 non-signed gifts in the New Testament, there are common responsibilities that every Christian share. You may not have the gift of evangelism, but you're called to do the work of an evangelist. And we're all called to be teachers in the sense that we can discern 
right from wrong, good from evil, that we can answer people's questions by taking them to the scripture. It doesn't mean that I'll be a great expository preacher, but I'm doctrinally sound. That's why when you look for elders in the church, there are, <laughs> there are some elders, 1 Timothy 5 teaches, who uh, are worthy of double honor because they give their lives to the preaching and teaching of the word. There are other elders who are not necessarily Bible teachers. They may not have a speaking gift at all, but they are required to be sound in doctrine. Why? Because that's an aspect of maturity. So for by this time you ought to be teachers, you need again someone to teach you the ABCs, the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. How so? For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have trained their senses. The word trained is the Greek word that we get our word gymnasium from. Gymnasteo. Uh, it comes right into English is gymnasium. They have gymnasticized their senses, so to speak, to discern good and evil. And so that involves a serious relationship to the word of God. And it requires the local church to have a serious relationship to preaching. That uh, preaching is not some side event, but it is supposed to be the centrality of the service. And this is why during the Protestant Reformation, when they were trying to go back to sola scriptura, they put the pulpit where Ezra did above the people. So you read Ezra and you discover that the, the pulpit is elevated above the people. And in the great Reformation churches, I, I went up in the pulpit that Swingley preached in. And the thing is about 25 feet up in the air. I discovered I wasn't supposed to be up there, but there was no sign that said I couldn't be. So I went up there and got my picture taken. And this guy came out and we were in Switzerland and he was about blue in the face. You know, uh, I wasn't supposed to be in that ancient pulpit, but it was a beautiful sight. And again, the word of God is above the people. Not the pastor, but the word of God. And so we're saying that we are under the authority of the word of God. They were emphasizing the centrality of God's word. And that has been lost in our day. And that's why we have evangelicals across America who say, oh, that's a great book. That's a good movie. Because they just have no discernment and they've lost their ability to uh, distinguish between good and evil. Babes, uh, to summarize the writer to the Hebrews uh, exhortation in one word. Good question. Let's go to the next. Well, um, I'd actually like to make a, uh, a recommendation okay. for a movie. And right. uh, I went and saw it. Uh, it was supposed to be one night only, but they are bringing it back tonight only uh, for a second engagement in Bluffton and in Savannah. Uh, it's called Is Genesis History, and it was uh, Ken Ham. Uh, Ken Ham was yep. one of the folks that, that right. had a great deal of influence in it. The narrator or basic person is Del Tackett. Uh, he was with the vice president with Focus on the Family. Anyway, over a two-hour period, it covers every possible question you could ever have regarding, you know, the the bunk of, you know, this earth being millions of years old. Mm. And it, it, mm. it shows you that, you know, even scientifically, um, there, there is proof exclusively for a six-day literal creation. Uh, very, yeah. very well done. And wow. I, I would highly recommend that. Uh, it's playing in Bluffton. In Bluffton. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to, uh, and you've got some free time tonight, I would recommend I wish you I did, to but I don't. But uh, <laughs> anyway, but it sounds cool. All right. Well, our next uh, question comes from Kimberly in Bluffton. She says she's been at churches where members place money on the altar 
as an offering. Uh, I know in the scriptures, if you have a disagreement with someone, you leave your offering at the altar and be reconciled with your brother in Matthew 5, 24. Is, is putting money on the altar biblical now? Well, it's a good question. Let me, let me read the text. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, as St. Augustine referred to this section of Scripture, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, his great title, he uh, gave it in the 4th century. It's kind of stuck to this day. Uh, if you go to Israel, and we are planning to go to Israel in 2018, maybe that's something that you would like to do. Uh, we'll have the brochure available uh, beginning on Easter. Uh, but you can actually go to the place where this sermon was preached and it's not a mystery where it was and uh, it's kind of a hillside that goes up and you can see Christ there down by uh, the Sea of Galilee and how his voice would have carried especially the way the wind blows and have spoken to thousands of people and he said you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into the prison truly I say to you you shall not come out of there until you've paid the last cent so he's speaking about uh, of course in the Sermon on the Mount about the difference between the righteousness that we need to enter the kingdom of heaven versus Pharisaical righteousness. And of course their righteousness was outward and they thought because they looked good on the outside that everything was fine on the inside. And that's why probably the key verse to the whole sermon that unlocks it is when he says in uh, Matthew 5, just before this paragraph in verse 20, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. And then he begins this discourse. We just read the first six verses in that discourse about air, uh, anger. And he gives two illustrations and both deal with situations in which, you know, the hearer is the cause of another person's anger rather than say the offended party. And uh, I, I think it's interesting the way he constructs the illustrations in the order he gives them, perhaps because it would be more likely to remember, you know, a situation where we have some grievance against another person than those in which, you know, we've been offended. In either case, he said, if you go to present your gift at the altar, and of course the altar he's referring to is the brazen altar in the temple. It was in the temple courtyard where a person would bring a um, sacrifice in light of um, what God had prescribed in the Levitical law. And he said, if you're coming to worship God and then you remember your brother has something against you, it's more important to me that you go and fix it with your brother than you just come with uh, hypocrisy in your heart. You know, I often tell people if there's a wall between you and your brother, then there's a ceiling between you and God. If there's a wall between you and your brother, there's a ceiling between you and God. And so if you're not right with your brother, you're really not right with God. And so if you come to present 
you know, your worship to the living God and you've wronged someone and you need to go fix it um, so that your heart is clean. So when God speaks of us uh, worshiping, he says he seeks those in John's gospel who worship in spirit and in truth. And so to worship in the spirit, you need to be clean vertically. You need to be cleaned horizontally. That is, there can't be anything blocking you in your relationship with the Lord where you offended him, but neither can there be on the horizontal level. Now, I recognize there are people who want to make things right with a brother, and it's not always possible. And that's why God, when he writes through the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, uh, gives a, a caveat of sorts so that we can understand biblically that this is sometimes the situations that we will face. And so he says in uh, Romans chapter 13, he says, if possible, be with peace with all men, as much as it depends upon you. Romans 12, as I said, 13, if possible, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. That's Romans 12 and verse 18. Um, so sometimes it's not possible, uh, and we need to though, do everything we can from our side. But if we've done that, then we can trust our heart is clear before the Lord. But here, here's the point that Jesus is making. The Pharisees looked at the outside. Jesus looks not as man looks, as he said through the prophet Samuel, when, uh, he was, uh, going to pick a new King for Israel to replace Saul. Man looks at outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And so reconciliation, being clear with your brother is more important than coming to worship God first because you really can't worship him in spirit and in truth if there's a blockage there. And so he deals first with the subject of anger and anger can be a real problem and, and it can lead to murder. In fact, John will say to hate your brother is to be a murderer, uh, but anger unchecked will grow and it will root in your heart and really be destructive to you and to those people who are around you. That's why Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, don't let the day finish without you making things right. But to get back to your specific question, but, you know, again, the, to, to emphasize, you know, oh, this verse says, put your gift on the altar, that, that misses the whole point of the passage. The whole point of the passage is that we worship God with clean hearts. Now, with that said, could you make an application where someone maybe um, you know, had given their offering at the brazen altar versus today. I don't think this is a command per se to uh, put your gift down on the altar because really the church, uh, there is no altar there in the church. Now we may call the front of the church the altar, but it's really not, not in any respect. But let me say that very often, when churches take an offering in some churches in a very formalized way, then they, then they bring the offering to the front and they give it to the Lord. Uh, every Sunday at Community Bible Church, we pray a prayer of dedication to the offering that's going to be collected. We do it before. But I do think it's important to recognize that it's part of the worship service. And unfortunately, this is being removed from the worship service today. If you go into Creflo Dollars Church, what an appropriate name for a prosperity theologian. You know, there's a big grid and you just kind of drop your money down as you walk in through the foyer and it goes down below. Uh, in a lot of churches now, they have a kiosk out in the foyers where you just give online or you give 
through a text message. And okay, I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong. We have an avenue for people to give online because we have people who are at home sick and they can't come and they will give online. We have Marines who are in other parts of the world and they will give online. And so technology can be a wonderful thing, though I don't like the idea myself personally of someone says, well, why do you want to give online? Well, because I get miles on my credit card. Well, that's not a good motivation. Not to mention uh, when you give in that fashion, uh, sometimes, you know, the credit card company is taking the bite and different churches do it in different ways. So I don't want, you know, a percentage of my 10% or whatever you give above the 10% to go to the credit card company. So, you know, the, the worship service includes worshiping God with our gifts. And we see that in first Corinthians where on the first day of the week, Uh, When they gathered together, it was part of the worship service. And that's the pattern there for us to to give uh, because our our heart really follows where our money is. So if if bringing it down front is to say, Lord, we are worshiping you with this, fine. Okay, there's an external um, symbol. If you want to use that, great. I'm not dismissing that. but, But that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that your heart needs to be clean. And today we give in secret and uh, under the new covenant and other things. So it's a good question. I appreciate it. Um, Let's go to the next one. All right. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next caller would like to know whether a Christian ought to invest in stocks and bonds uh, as even diverse investing such as mutual bonds involve risk. Therefore, could it be considered gambling? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say it's gambling. You know, if you um, want to invest in a company and your friend is starting a company, he's going to start a um, a lawn business and he needs to uh, buy 10 lawnmowers and 20 weed eaters and edgers and needs a trailer and a truck and he's going to hire 25 people and and he wants you to invest in his business. Is that a gamble? Well, I suppose there's a risk involved if he doesn't get the job, uh, the jobs, or he doesn't do the quality of work that will allow him to keep those jobs. So yeah, there's a risk in everything. Uh, There's a principle taught in Ecclesiastes where you cast your bread across the water. In other words, you don't put all your eggs in one basket, as we'd say today. And so when you think about investing in, and by the way, I have a course on finances, uh, the theology of money, what God says about your money. And it's really his money because we're just stewards of it. And we look at what the Bible says about giving, saving, debt. And one of the areas that we look at as well is investing. And I, I believe people need to learn first what the Bible says about saving and giving and debt in order to earn their right to invest. Uh, There are people who've got credit card debt and they're talking about putting money in the stock market and their priorities are out of whack. Uh, The biblical priorities would be to pay off your debt first. So you need to learn the, have the right to invest. And what does the Bible really say on that? And so that's a long answer, but if that's of interest to you, go to searchthescriptures.org and there's a whole course on it. There's a notebook that goes with it that's about 130 pages long, and you will really find out what God says. Or maybe even come this Sunday, I'm speaking actually on the subject of finance, financial wellness. What does God say about financial wellness? 
but you know certainly there are stocks that are more risky than others and so uh, when you work with an investor they will usually rate the stocks high risk moderate risk low risk the thing about the stock market is it can change and it can fluctuate and then it's pretty high right now and it seems to be a little bit artificially high uh, I wonder if it's going to, you know, crash sometime here soon. Uh, it just seems a little artificially high in light of the fact that we have $20 trillion in debt. And I'll tell you, if this administration doesn't do something, we are headed for a crash that makes what took place in 2008 look bland. I think it would make the crash of the 1920s look bland. You cannot keep borrowing money in your personal life and not pay the piper at some point. And as a nation, you can't continue to borrow money. And this is what, what's really kind of interesting what's happening right now in Europe. You know, you've got European countries with the same problems that we have. So one European nation went basically bankrupt last year. And so if you had $100,000 in the bank, they said, well, here, you can have $30,000 of it. It's yours. The other $70,000, the government bought stock for you. Uh, so they bought stock for you in these failed banks. I, I, they'll probably never see that $70,000. What Germany is doing right now is very interesting. They just got rid of what we would have as a parallel as the $100 bill. And so now it's all in smaller denominations. Now, the way they are arguing and defending it before the people is they're saying, well, you know, we... um." We don't want large denominations to be used, you know, by uh, people who are laundering money and people who are using it to support terrorism. And if you live in a place like Germany and some of these Western European nations where terrorism has walked in the front door, largely because they don't vet a lot of the people and they have a view of human nature that's not consistent with the Bible, uh, then they have brought, you know, a lot of problems. But there's some other things that are going on. You know, in Greece, a few years ago, we were in Greece a few years ago when we did a trip on the footsteps of Paul. And, I mean, it's just really sad what's happening in that nation. And they have, um, through the European Union, delayed their trouble, but they're getting ready to uh, have the trouble all over again. And while we were there, there were runs on the banks that were going on. And people were trying to get their money out. And then people were sticking their money, so to speak, under their mattresses. And then homes were being broken into. So what they're doing now in Germany, and this is their goal, they want to eliminate all cash in Germany. So that, and, and if you think about it, uh, to be honest with you, I carry very little cash. I put everything on a credit card. It's just convenient. Now, I've never paid a dime of interest to a credit card company. I pay it 100% in full every month, always have, since I got my first gas credit cards when I was 18 years old. And I have a way in which I manage it, which I teach this in the financial course, again, if that's of interest to you. But yes, it's just easy uh, to use the credit card. There's a lot of benefits from doing it, assuming you don't pay any interest and you pay it off in full every month. If you can't do that, cut up your credit cards. But there's a new generation growing up. You know, you see them in the supermarkets and they scan their phone and uh, their credit card is charged and we're becoming more and more cashless. Well, what's the implications if, uh, if the United States, say, became cashless? They could say, well, you know, people can't use dollars anymore to support terrorism. 
uh, real physical money. They can't launder money. They can't uh, pay bills, uh, pay services under the table where the guy you're paying doesn't have to pay taxes on it. And so that will help us with this $20 trillion of debt. You can see how this scenario is being set up for it. What else does it mean? It means you have no control over your money. That if indeed the economy crashes, which I suspect it's going to in Germany unless they do something. And I think Merkel and others see the handwriting on the wall. And so if they get to the point, and this is what they, they've already said, this is their goal to go cashless and there's a, a financial crash in the country, you can't get your money. It's not like you can physically hold a, a German mark because there won't be anything to hold. It's all going to be on paper and in the bank, and then they can totally control your money, whether or not you can get it out. So it's an ingenious idea, but it's where we're ultimately going as we will study in the next book of the Bible. We're going to begin to teach verse by verse on the book of Revelation and we will see that uh, this is going to be, I think, very instrumental in part of the one world economy that the world is going to go to. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next uh, caller has a question regarding Romans 8, uh, verses 4 through 8. Uh, would you give an example of walking after the Spirit and not after the flesh? This caller is wondering if you could kind of paint a picture of what these verses are saying. Well, let me give you the hour-long answer by encouraging you to go to searchthescriptures.org. I did over 50 sermons on the book of Romans, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and I give a very clear expository function of this. But what Paul is basically arguing for here in Romans chapter 8 is that what we couldn't do, God did in Christ, and because he did what he did through Christ, he can now send the Holy Spirit to live in us. This is a fulfillment of the new covenant that Jeremiah and Ezekiel both speak of, where God would forgive their sin, Israel's sin, but it's applicable to the church today and to Gentiles because we are invited to share in Israel's blessings. And someday it will be fully applicable to Israel because they're going to recognize that Yeshua, Jesus is the Messiah and they will experience it. Um, but he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. There was nothing wrong with the law. It's a reflection of God's character. The problem was not with the law. The problem was with us in our inability to keep the law. When God said, you know, don't do something and we did it, we broke the law because we have a sin nature. Well, what the law couldn't do, weak as it was through the flesh, and that is in our own ability to, to fulfill it, God did. How? Uh, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't come in sinful flesh because he was sinless. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh in that his flesh was real and yet it was sinless. He was a real person. And of course, he will become the object of God's wrath where he himself will bear our sin in his own body on the cross. And so as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. For what purpose? In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, when you come and you receive Jesus as your Lord, and he spent a number of chapters explaining what that means and why you could not be saved through human effort and through obedience to the law, but only through the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, the one who bore our wrath and totally propitiated or satisfied the Father with his sacrifice. 
So because of what Christ did, he can now send the spirit to live in us. So now we have a new option to walk according to the spirit. Those who are not born again, who walk according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. They're flesh driven. They are this life only because they do not have the mind of Christ. They do not have a regenerated nature that thinks differently and wants to please God. Whereas someone who's been born again, they walk according to the spirit and they seek after the things of the spirit. Now, for that to be a reality in your life, if you uh, are listening to me today and you've never been saved, your first step is to be saved. You have to be born again. You have to have the Holy Spirit in you. And the Bible teaches that by nature, while our bodies are physically moving on the inside, we are spiritually dead. That's why God said to Adam, the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. The day. You know, you ask people, did they eat the fruit? Yes. Did they die that day? Most people shake their head and say, no, no, they died that day. They died on the inside spiritually. They're estranged from God, afraid of God, hiding from God. They began to die on the outside physically. Now man is born dying. We are aging. And if the problem is not fixed, you will die eternally. And so he will go on to say that the end byproduct of those who spend their whole life living after the flesh because they haven't been born again. And they might be a good moral person. They might be a wicked, vile, immoral person, but they're living after their own value system because they've never been born again. And so the end product of that is death, eternal death, the second death. Uh, But if you are listening to me and you are born again, then the Holy Spirit lives in you. And now you have a choice. That's Romans six. You no longer have to be a slave to sin but you have to live by the spirit. And so this is what Paul calls being filled with the spirit. And so don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Uh, He doesn't say don't commit adultery, but be filled with the spirit. Don't steal, but be filled with the spirit. Don't lie, but be filled with the spirit. No, he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Why? Because he's making an analogy between a drunk man and a spirit filled person, a man who's drunk It affects his walk and it affects his talk. How does a man stay drunk? He keeps drinking. Even so, when one is filled with the spirit, he's under the influence of the spirit. He will affect your walk and your talk and he will do it in conjunction with the scripture. So again, this is why it's absolutely essential that you are in a church where the pastor is not giving sermonettes for Christianettes, but he's opening the scripture and expositing it. Because there is a parallel, Jesus taught in John 15, uh, Paul taught between Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, between being filled with the Spirit and allowing God's Word to richly dwell within you. So when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, He doesn't fill us in a vacuum. He does in conjunction to the Word. And you can only be filled with the Spirit to the point that you know and understand the biblical principles that He wants you to walk after. But you have a new capability. Maybe this person who called in should come uh, to our Wednesday night series on pneumatology, or you could go online to searchthescriptures.org where we are doing a complete study on the Holy Spirit, that he is a member of the Godhead, that there, are, there is one God we worship who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Right now we're in the section of the course that deals with the work of the Holy Spirit at different times in human history. So we looked at the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament uh, in the creation of the world and then largely through five specific groups of people. And uh, when you add them all up, they're less than a thousand. 
less than a thousand people out of the several million that were involved in Israel and Gentile proselytes. There's less than a thousand. Some would put it around two to three hundred. But I'm being generous when I say a thousand who had any kind of a special relationship with the Holy Spirit, be they a prophet or a craftsman or a civil leader or a king or uh, whatever. Um, then we looked at the role of the Holy Spirit from Bethlehem to Pentecost in his unique work, one in overshadowing the womb of Mary in generating a body uh, to be inseparably uh, added to Christ's eternal deity. And then we saw the work of the spirit through Christ himself and his preaching and his teaching and his miracles, how he chose to depend upon the Holy Spirit and then a unique but limited expression through the apostles. But then we saw how Pentecost changed everything. And we are right now studying the role of the Holy Spirit between now and the rapture of the church. Then during the time of the great tribulation, his role will change again and it will change again during the millennium. So we're not done with the course, but it's on Wednesday nights. If you're coming from work, the teaching time starts at about seven. Let's go to the next question. All right. Our next caller would like you to please explain who will populate the earth during the millennial reign, because we know we Christians will be in heaven. Well, it's a good question. Uh, First, Jesus comes for his saints. We call that the rapture. Then he comes back with his saints. That's the second coming. So sometimes when people use the term second coming, uh, they're, they're referring only to Christ's physical return uh, to the earth. They, they use it in different ways. Like when we speak of the first coming of Christ, generally we're speaking of you know, Bethlehem, his childhood, his public ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension to heaven. That's all part of the first coming. Um, if you want to be a little more technical, there are, uh, there's the rapture of the church, the catching up of the church where we shall all meet the Lord in the air. And that's distinct from when he comes back to the earth. He will literally actually physically come to the Mount of Olives. When we go to Israel, Lord willing in 2018, we will stand on the Mount of Olives to the very place that Jesus is going to come back to. He's going to split the mountain in two. He's going to walk through a gate, the golden gate, the Eastern gate, the Bible prophesies this and he's going to walk right up into the temple mount and onto a rebuilt temple. It's going to be an amazing, amazing event. In either case, um, the rapture of the church is distinct from the second coming and the rapture is not synonymous with the second coming. Uh, a lot of uh, amillennialists, and we'll talk about this in Revelation. If you come for the Revelation series, or if you're listening online today, it will be posted each week, but you'll get a lot more if you're there, if you don't have a church home. I'm not trying to grab you if you're not already in a good Bible teaching, Bible believing church, you should support it. And that's where you should be on Sunday and tithing to that local assembly and serving in that local assembly. But if you don't have a church home, think about Community Bible Church, we would welcome you. And uh, if you're there, you'll get a lot more out of it because there's things that we do in the auditorium graphically and otherwise that will help you to understand it and see things even better. In either case, what I'm trying to say is that the Bible argues for a pre-tribulational rapture. They can't be distinct because if the second coming if in the rapture is one event, some the way they alleviate the problem is say Jesus comes, takes us up in the air, that's it. It's all over. And he doesn't fulfill his promises to Israel. 
and he will not literally rule and reign upon the earth. And we have some people who teach that on this station. I don't agree with them, but, you know, they teach that. All right, fine. Um, Do I think they're wrong? Yes. God made some unconditional promises to the nation of Israel, and he's going to keep those promises, period. They are uh, unconditional. God said he is going to do it. And just like he kept every single promise, literally, actually, for the first coming, he will keep them in reference to the second coming. If the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, if we are all caught up in the air and we all get glorified bodies, Jesus said in our glorified bodies, we'll be like the angels and that we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So there will be no one to procreate. And if in our glorified bodies, we cannot sin. And that's what Philippians 3, 20 and 21 teaches. Then how on earth can you, if you just apply a simple, plain, literal, grammatical hermeneutic to the book of Revelation, how can you have people at the end of the tribulation rebelling against God Almighty? You can't. It's impossible. And so God very clearly teaches that the church is caught up. He comes for his saints and he comes back with his saints and people who survive the tribulation will enter the millennial reign of Christ in their natural bodies. The curse will be lifted off of the creation, but those who enter in their natural bodies will be able to procreate and they will be able to have children and grandchildren and great grandchildren. And some of their offspring will end up rebelling at the end of the thousand years when Satan is loosed against God's Messiah, Jesus, who'd been reigning on the earth for that whole thousand year period. Now, your question is very, very complicated. It's very complex. That's a very simple, shortened answer. But if you study with us in the Revelation, and we go, we'll go through it by God's grace. If Jesus doesn't come first, every chapter, every word, every verse, you'll have a full picture. All right, let's go to the next question. All right. In Isaiah 53.3, it says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What does this mean? It's a messianic passage, Isaiah 53. Uh, it's a, it's in what we call the prophetic past tense. When you wanted to underscore something is so absolutely certain that it was going to happen and you wanted to highlight it in red or underline it so that your reader couldn't miss it. You used in Hebrew, what's called a prophetic past. So there's a number of passages that just use a future tense. That's prophetic. This is a prophetic past as if it had already had taken place. And so he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Uh, The world, when he came, for the most part, rejected him. He came to his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. He was acquainted with grief. Listen, if Lot, who is a righteous man and that he was you know, in New Testament terminology, he's born again. He was a genuine believer. You will meet Lot in heaven. He's a real, genuine, bona fide believer. Um, you will meet him in heaven. But he was a compromised believer. He had a lot of compromise in his heart that caused him to drift from the Lord. Well, if Lot's, even in his compromised heart, could be tormented by the sin around him. Think about the sinless son of God. Look, sometimes my heart is just so grieved and I say in my spirit, even so come Lord Jesus, how much longer? And we haven't seen anything yet when the church is removed 
and the influence of the body of Christ is gone and all the salt and light is dissipated. Evil is going to break out. And when the spirit lifts his hand of restraint off the world, you haven't seen anything yet. But the seeds are being sown for that in our day. It, it, you know, you used to say oh, every year it's worse. It seems like every month it's getting worse. Man is just getting more and more rebellious and obstinate towards God Almighty. And this is not surprising to me because the Bible says at the end of time, this would happen. You say, Pastor, do you believe you're in the, the, the latter times? Yes, we're in the latter times, not just the last days, which began on the day of Pentecost, but the last of the last days, which are also described as the latter times, because there's prophecy for the latter times that is being fulfilled in our day. And it's going to get a whole lot worse. And so hold on to your seats. And so if Jesus, you know, if Lot could be grieved, how about the sinless son of God? How much was he grieved? He was, he had compassion. He was moved literally in his, in his bowels. You ever, you know, feel like a churning in your stomach when there's some, something really big happening in your, in your life. Jesus felt that over just the grief he experienced with a sinful men all around him. So Anyway, that's just a short answer. We could spend an hour expositing it. It's a great text. If you've never read Isaiah 53, read it. It's like an eyewitness 700 years before Christ describing what the Messiah is going to do. Very good. Our next caller would like to know whether a woman is uh, able to serve in a leadership position in business or as a locally or nationally elected position, such as president. Well, um, there are three institutions that God ordained he ordained the church, he ordained uh, government, he ordained marriage, and we could even say he ordained Israel, a fourth institution. So let me make some distinctions here. In the church, uh, women are equal with men, but we play different roles. And so I have a series on the role of women in the church, and that maybe would be helpful to you from our exposition of the pastoral epistles. You might want to listen to first Timothy two and three, but there are some things that only men can do in the church. And there are some things that only women can do in the church. And so a woman, for instance, should not be a pastor. Um, in the home, men and women are equal, but while they're equal, they have different roles. The man is called to be the head of his wife and she is called to submit to his leadership. We are mutually submissive. Paul says that's a mark of being spirit filled. But on the other hand, uh, there is the need for a leader. And if you have two people trying to lead, you have chaos. It just doesn't work. And God really designed the family the way he did. Because of sinful man, we need structure. We need authority. Um, if there were no, say, police or military, you wouldn't want to live in the United States. You wouldn't want to live in Beaufort County. We need it for our protection. And the more evil the culture gets, the more authoritative that protection is going to have to become, or it just doesn't work at all. If there are no self-governors in the human heart, then there are external governors that are going to be put on. And some of the things that are happening, it's kind of scary. Um, if you're not a Christian, it is scary. And you see some of these uh, people who you know, basic expressions of freedom of speech and things that are just being squished. And, you know, I saw that professor 
at Middlebury College and, you know, having their hair pulled and, you know, and hurt physically and having to go to the hospital, uh, a, a speaker had been invited to Middlebury. Middlebury is no like, you know, second rate school. It's like top of the line, not an Ivy League, but up there with the Ivies and certainly in cost. I don't know, it's like sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year to go there. Um, and yet these rebellious students did what they did. And some of it was fostered through the encouragement of their professors. So you just see some of these people, especially the millennials. And I thank God for the great godly millennials we have in our church. But there's some that are growing up that, man, if they're the leaders of the free world in the years ahead, the world's not going to be all that free. So uh, we're, we're living in challenging times. We need to keep our perspective as Christians. We don't need to be discouraged. These days, Jesus said would, would come. Uh, we need to remember that, um, you know, there is an authority structure for a reason. So where does God intend for a child to learn to respect authority in the smallest microcosm of life, the home. Now in Israel, there was a theocracy. And so women could not serve as kings. The office of king was only for the theocracy of Israel and for men. Um, Now, to make the same parallel today, since we don't have Israel as a theocracy, and to say that a woman couldn't be a senator or a woman couldn't even be president is, uh, I think, would be a misnomer. But I will say that when women take the role that men take, God doesn't see that as a blessing. The prophet Isaiah says God sees it as a judgment when women have taken the role that men should play. Now, there's a lot of women who think, oh, look, she's governor. Yeah, well, she's governor, all right. Look at her children. No one's at home raising them. Oh, she's raising them from afar because she's governor. Uh, And again, you know, if a woman really esteems the role that God has given her, then she's going to take seriously the role to be at home. Now, maybe there's a a, a lady who's single her whole life and has no children and she could take on some of these roles. Fine. But a Christian woman who has children and who's married, and that's typically what happens. And then as they get older, they're called certainly to teach the next generation. And so they, they can't say, well, I don't have any time to serve in the church. I don't have any time to teach the next generation because I have to be, you know, a senator and gone all the time. Well, you know, you got to weigh all these things because someday each one of us will give an account of ourselves to the Lord. But very clearly in the church and in the home, There's a distinction between the role that men and women will take. Some apply complementarianism and egalitarianism even to the political realm today. And I don't think in the truest sense you can do that because it was given in the context of Israel in Israel being a theocracy. But anyway, it's a good question, and I hope that helps. All right. I think we've got time for one more question. Um, This listener would like to know whether it is okay for us to call the father Abba Father or Was that just a term to be used between Jesus Christ and the Father? So if you go to Israel today, and I'm not trying to give a lot of commercials for Israel, though God willing, we're going again next year. And again, the brochure will be out on Easter. Um, If you go to Israel today and you just listen to Arab children and you listen to Jewish children speak to their parents, they don't say daddy, they say Abba, Abba. Abba, Abba, you hear him in the airplane, you're traveling over and you have all these Jewish people heading to Israel. Abba, Abba, that's how they say daddy. 
And so the term Abba, father, is a term of tenderness. And in the truest sense, that's the distinction between someone who just knows about God and someone who really knows the Lord. Uh, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. You know, I know Donald Trump in that he's the president of the United States and I know a lot about his life, but I don't know him personally. Well, a lot of people know God the way I know Donald Trump. And if they were raised in the church, they may know a lot of true and accurate facts about God. They may know that Jesus is God, the son, that he came to earth, that he lived a sinless life, born of a virgin, died in our place, was literally actually physically raised from the dead. You can know all those facts without knowing the Lord. And so Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And so in Romans eight, one of the marks of being born again is the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we've become children of God. And then he gives an example where in prayer we cry out, Abba, Father. What's his point? His point is, is that once you have a new birth, there's a new tenderness in your relationship with the Lord that you didn't have. Why? Because you've been made alive. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. You've been given the mind of Christ. You have been regenerated. You've been born again. And so when you cry out to God, there is a filial relationship that you didn't have prior to the second birth. Uh, so no, you can call God, your daddy, your father, Abba. If you go to uh, Arab and Jewish believer churches, Jews don't typically call God Abba, Father. They call their earthly dads that, but they don't call their heavenly dad that. They're not recipients of a new covenant, so you can see why they wouldn't. But if you go into a Messianic fellowship, you'll hear Jewish Christians. They, they will say, our Father, our Abba. And in Romans 8, aren't we allowed to call them? Of course, yeah. So we're given that freedom. Again, if you want the long answer, I've got a whole hour-long sermon on that in our exposition of Romans. Go to searchthescriptures.org, click on books of the Bible that are available online. One of those is Romans, and you can index it to the uh, Romans 8 section. Well, we're out of time, but as always, it's great to be here. And if you have questions, you can go to searchthescriptures.org, and there's a drop-down uh, menu, Ask Dr. Brogy a Question. And you can click on that and write your question. They come in from all over the world. Sometimes it takes me a month or two to answer them, but sooner or later you'll get answered. I don't think we got to too many from the uh, website today, Rick, but when they are answered, uh, you'll be emailed and you will be said, you can go online to searchthescriptures.org or wagp.net and listen to the Bible line. And Rick will list all the questions that were answered that day. And you might say, oh, yeah, there's my question. This is the seventh question. And you can scan through the bar and wait till you get to your question. You don't have to listen to the whole Bible line. But uh, I can speak a whole lot faster than I can write. And if I were to just literally actually physically type out every question, and I do a few largely with pastors in other parts of the world, I, I would never have time to do anything else. Anyway. Lord bless you. I hope you walk with Christ closely today. 